This film is lit. The podcast where we finally settle the score on one simple question. Is the book really better than the movie? I'm Brian, and I have a film degree, so I watch the movie, but don't read the book. And I'm Katie. I have an English degree, so I do things the right way and read the book before we watch the movie. So prepare to be wowed by our expertise and charm as we dissect all of your favorite film adaptations and decide if the silver screen or the written word did it better. So turn it up, settle in, and get ready for spoilers, because this film is lit. It's the year 2054, and murder is a thing of the past, but at what cost? It's Minority Report, and this film is lit. Hello guys, gals, non-binary, and everybody else, and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk about movies that are based on books. It is the 41st episode, it is Minority Report, and we are joined for the first time ever by a full-on guest host, not, sorry, call-in guest host, we've had (laughs) in-studio guest hosts before, but we're joined by Aaron Rabbi of the Embrace the Void and Philosophers in Space podcast. Aaron, how are you doing today? Doing great, thanks for having me on, it's fun. Yeah, no problem. Um, well, I'm a big fan of both of your main podcasts that you're on, uh, which is why we reached out to you. You have done two episodes on Minority Report on your show. Why don't you give us a little background on kind of what you do and why, what you do on Philosophers in Space specifically, mm-hmm. and uh, what you do in your day job and why you're, why you're qualified to speak about these sort of things. <laughs> sure. So on Philosophers in Space, we take a piece of sci-fi every week, or sometimes we'll take one piece and do a couple episodes on it if it's really hefty like dune or something um and we if it's something that i really like then we'll talk about it for several episodes <laughs> like dune, when you do eight episodes yeah. on it yeah um <laughs> and then we'll connect it to a specific um philosophical topic of some sort ranging through all the different kind of fields of philosophy and we usually try to go for things that are um it, it's all about making it accessible right making mm-hmm. philosophy not feel like something that's a sort of weird separate academic topic but realizing that like we're all kind of soaking in it all the time. So, yes. and I, the reason I do this is because I teach um, philosophy, primarily ethics at uh, Rutgers University. Um, and I am really into science fiction. I was raised on all these kind of movies and stories and stuff. So it's a nice marriage of all the things that I really find interesting. And it turns out there's a couple other people who also like it. Yes. Like I said, I'm a big fan. I listen to every episode. It's been a while since I listened to the Minority Report episodes because they were oof, a while ago on the Patreon feed. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I'm a big fan. Speaking of your Patreon feed, I wanted to plug one other thing specifically. I have a lot of we have a lot of fans on this show that cross over from my YouTube channel that I do uh, called Good, Bad or Bad, Bad. And we did one of our first few episodes. We covered Battlefield Earth and you're <laughs> you guys recently dove into that head first on your Patreon feed. Yep. And uh, it was a blast, I'll say. We went full rat brain. We did. <laughs> full manimal. Full, full manimal. Man- animal. No, they never say manimal. You'd I think know. they'd I say know. manimal, but no. I, yeah, I was. that was one of the first comments watching that film. I was like, how do they never once in this entire script? I felt like in the first pass they had manimal written, and they're like, that's a little too silly. We need to, we need to split that up. But uh, yeah, it's a great episode. So if you enjoy Philosophers in Space, I would definitely recommend subscribing or Supporting them on Patreon and checking out their uh, their Battlefield Earth breakdown. Yeah. All right, we're going to get into our first main segment here for the episode, which is Let Me Sum Up. Let me explain. 
there is too much. Let me sum up. All right. So to start this segment out, I usually give a summary yes. of the mm-hmm. book, or in this case, short story. Um, I try to get all of the relevant information in there so that people can understand the ways that it differs from the movie. If they haven't read or right. seen either thing. It's kind of a background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, in this case, I feel like my summary ended up almost as long as the story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's fair. All right. Go ahead, Katie. I'm going to plug my ears so I don't get too many things. Spo- Is there okay. any spoilers in here that's a problem um, for me? Yeah, All probably. All right. I'm going to plug my yeah, ears and plug home like ears. normal. All right. John Anderton is the head of pre-crime, a future police department that heads off all crime through the use of precogs, mutants that can see two weeks into the future. Anderton's world is turned upside down when the precogs predict that he will murder a man he's never heard of, Leopold Kaplan. Now on the run and suspicious of everyone, including his wife, Anderton risks his life to get a hold of the minority report, the one precog report out of three that did not predict his crime. Through twists and turns and shifting alliances, Anderton slowly comes to understand what happened and realizes that in order to keep the army from consolidating police power, he must make sure the premonition comes to pass. All right, I'm going to briefly summarize the film here. John Anderton is the premier detective and maybe chief of the Washington, D.C. pre-crime unit. Pre-crime has been rolled out in D.C. as a test with plans to take it nationwide very soon. Things go awry when Anderton starts delving into an old prevented quote-unquote murder. Shortly after that, his name shows up as a future murderer and John has to run. Boy, does he. (laughs) Ultimately, John discovers that the murder he was going to commit was orchestrated by the creator of pre-crime Burgess, and the old prevented murder he was investigating wasn't actually prevented. It was carried out by Burgess himself to stop the main precog, Agatha's mother, from taking her back, thus ruining pre-crime, or ending pre-crime, because she's kind of the key to the whole thing. Mm. Anderton exposes this secret to the world. Puts Burgess between a rock and a hard place, ultimately resulting in Burgess committing suicide and pre-crime being shut down. So that's kind of the the movie in a yeah. nutshell for people who haven't watched it. Oh, by the way, spoilers in case. Why? Why <laughs> Max von Sydow? Why? Right. Uh, we were talking about in the prequel uh, too that that originally at one vert point was going to be played by Ian McKellen, which I thought would have been mm, pretty great. Too. Interesting. Yeah. There was a version with him, uh, Matt Damon, I believe, was. Or there, there was a whole different cast of, uh, but it was like Tom Cruise was still Anderton, but every other main character was somebody wildly different, but kind of similar, and it was mm-hmm. been an interesting take on it. <laughs> so there we go. That's our summary. Let's get into our game show portion of the episode, which is guess who? Who are you? No one of consequence. I must know. Get used to disappointment. So premise for this for our listeners and anybody else who's coming over maybe from Aaron's podcast. I have not read the book. I probably should have stated that again at the beginning. Uh, It's in our intro, but I have not read the book or the short story that this is adapted from. So I don't know. I'm kind of going off only the movie. Mm -hmm. And so they're going to read character descriptions. I'm going to try to guess which character from the film this description is uh, describing. So go ahead, Katie. All right. I'm getting bald. Bald and fat and old. Max von Sydow. He's not fat, though. Okay, sorry. Continue. That's it. That's it? That's it. Bald and fat and old. Yes. Here, Here's what I'm going to do, though. I think I have a guess on this, but I'm doing it because I'm delving into my memory from our fifth episode where we did Blade Runner. Uh-huh. And the main character in that one, Deckard, is also bald, fat, and old in the short story, <laughs> I believe, whereas Harrison Ford is very much not so I'm going to think that maybe it's a similar idea here where it it's it's Anderton 
uh, as and like it was Deckard in in Blade Runner, and uh, they kind of sexed him up and let Tom Cruise play him. I'm gonna go with uh, Anderton for that one. So that's your final answer. That's my final answer. It is Anderton. Boom. That's, and they did sex him up. That's some pretty good <laughs> Philip K. Dick pre-criming you did right there. That was yeah. Well, like I said, I, I remember that specifically from the the Blade Runner episode we did, where it was yeah. No, I was is, like I remember. Yeah, go, yeah, go ahead. No, I was gonna say. I mean, this no, is yeah. the same problem in Total Recall with um uh, Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger, right? One yeah. of the biggest issues with Philip K. Dick adaptations is all Philip K. Dick leads are kind of schlubby everyman, <laughs> and yeah. all Philip K. Dick lead actors in movies are. Tom Cruise like people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Action movie stars. Action Keanu stars, Reeves. Yeah. It's just, you know, Nicolas Cage. Yep. <laughs> so I remembered that and I'm glad I was able to store that away in my memory banks because that helped me go one for one. All right, Aaron, hit me with the second one. All right. Uh the look on his blonde, overly confident face showed that he considered the matter settled. What was actually going on in that close cropped skull? The young man's eyes were blue bright and disturbingly clever blonde hair there's like nobody with blonde hair in this movie <laughs> other than like maybe a precog agatha kind of has blonde hair there's, um there's a guy on the team what's his name for that actor who i really like oh yeah 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 yeah. the the guy he uh says you don't have to run john yeah. or whatever uh yeah. yeah that guy um i can't remember his name his i could never remember but i always remember his yeah face. his partner or whatever <laughs> um i just called him beefcake in my head the whole beefcake? time beefcake that's pretty good <laughs> He is a bit of a beefcake. He, he is. And he does have piercing blue eyes. That character does, or that actor does have mm-hmm. pretty piercing blue mm-hmm. eyes, which was part of this description. Uh, but makes me, this makes me think that this is, um, but just based on it being the second description, because Katie's not always the best at hiding the order of these, <laughs> oh, <laughs> based on when characters are introduced. Rude. Wow. <laughs> I'm Fight, thinking fighting this may be. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> mommy and daddy are fighting. Um, this may be uh, uh, Colin Farrell's character, uh, who I think is in the book, if I remember. I also, slight spoilers, since I did listen to the Philosophers in Space episodes on this, I did get a little bit of background knowledge from the <laughs> short story. <laughs> so I'm cheating a little. But uh, I'm gonna, I am gonna—I can't remember his name now, uh, but I'm going to say Colin Farrell's character. Final answer? Yes, final answer. That is correct. Whitwer. Whitwer, yeah. that's it. Yes. Whitwer. We should have clearly wiped so they, your memory before we did this episode. Yeah, they really, yeah. We've not really Philip K. Dick this properly. No. <laughs> you just plain old dicked it, just apparently. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Third one. I'm two for two, though. I'm crushing this. You are. <laughs> His pale eyes flickered slightly as they rested on a brown haired woman in her trim police uniform. Oh, it's a brown haired woman in a police uniform. Because the only female characters in this movie are Agatha and his wife or ex-wife at this point. And she is brown haired. There is a female police member. Is there? There There might be, but she's not a major character. I'm misremembering. Because like the main police guys other than Anderton are the guy who sits at the computer and like does stuff at the end and like broadcasts the thing. And then the blue eyed beefcake and then just like kind of nameless other people, I feel like. All right. But um, there may have been a woman in that say, room. I'm not going to say there wasn't, but there may have been a woman in that room. <laughs> there may have been. There may have been. I just, yeah, there, there very well may have been. Another Philip K. Dick problem. Yeah. 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 We, we discussed that a bit in Blade Runner. <laughs> you start yeah. to notice that um, trend. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, so in terms of like in, in the police uniform is really throwing me because I'm still going to say that it's uh, it's Anderton's wife slash ex-wife 
Does she have a name? <laughs> she does. I'm sure she does, but I don't um, know. Her name is Lara in the movie. Yeah. And in the story, it's Lisa. And that is correct. Nice. So is she a police... So, well, I guess we'll get there, but she's a, she she is a police officer of some sort, or pre-crime officer in the short story? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. She's, yeah. She doesn't okay. live in a fridge in the story. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Uh, last one, Aaron. Here we go. The man nervously sipped a pair. Uh, sorry. Uh, the man nervously slipped a pair of rimless glasses in place, snapped the case shut, and moistened his dry lips. He was elderly, perhaps 70 or older. His body was thin, wiry, his attitude curiously rigid. What little hair he had was dusty brown. A carefully smoothed sheen of neutral color about his pale, bony skull. Well, I mean, now, I'm a little confused because from what I remember, I thought Burgess wasn't like a character in this in the book. But or in the short story. But he's the only old person in the movie that's like a main character that mm-hmm. matters. Um so I'm gonna say Bert. He might be mentioned in the book, but he just might not have as much of a play as much as a role as he does in the movie. Is what I'm gonna kind of guess. But he is still probably in it. Uh, so I'm gonna say Burgess or the founder of pre-crime. Mm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should give it to him on a technicality. In in so far, yeah, because I, yeah. I I fudged it a little here okay. to get another character description. Burgess isn't in the short story, but he yeah. has a kind of sort of equivalent. Okay. In a, yeah, in a very loose sense, right? Yeah. Right. There's another antagonist okay. in the story who is an old guy. Yeah. Is he the founder of Free Crime? No. 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 But the, okay. if I'm remembering right, he is the one who um, he, he plays a similar role in the orchestration of what happens to Anderton. Oh, Are we okay. at a point where I, I can spoil the plot some and clarify? Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah that's yeah, fine. Yeah. I mean, there's okay. things I'll ask about later, but yeah, go for it. So... In the short story, uh, the Burgess character and the uh, Anderton character are the same character, basically. It's just the one old guy who started pre-crime and gets set up by the new guy, Whitwer. Um, There's a whole separate plot in the story that they chose not to use involving um, the military and, like, the military trying to um, take over control of of policing essentially and so there's a po- mm. there's a military guy named Kaplan who is the antagonist who uh but though you find out in the story no one's was setting anyone up just like in the in oh yeah yeah no one no one was setting anyone up whereas in the movie there's a little bit more of a direct setup occurring okay interesting cool i think that's how oh. this i mean like you could interpret that story maybe a yeah. couple of different ways but i think mm-hmm. that's my impression is that it's not it's yeah. never actually a setup all right Cool. Well, that was Guess Who? 4 for 4, Crushing It. Uh, I cheated, but I still <laughs> got all of four. Right. So let's move on to what's that in the book? Nicholas Flamel is the only known maker of the Philosopher's Stone. The what? Honestly, don't you two read? All right. This is the section where I, the non reader, I mean, I do read quite a bit, but in this instance, the non reader. Uh, <laughs> You should, I just don't want people to get the wrong impression and think I don't read at all. You should pull the Bill Hicks sketch where he talks about reading in a Denny's one time when he's on the road. And he says that someone comes up to him and says, oh, well, we got ourselves a reader. Because <laughs> he, like, he walked into a Klan rally in a Boy George costume. Yeah. <laughs> I'm eating, I'm alone, and I'm reading a book. Waitress walks over to me. Hey, what you reading for? 
Is that like the weirdest question ever? Then this trucker in the next booth gets up, stands over me and goes, well, looks like we got ourselves a Rita. So this section, no, I, I pick out elements from the movie that I feel like were either likely added for the film uh, version or maybe I think potentially were in the book and want to see if they were. Uh, I have a few things and we're going to jump through uh, uh, some of them here. So was that in the book? First off, do the crimes get displayed on highly polished wooden balls that slide down an elaborate uh, uh, gerbil cage, hamster (laughs) cage contraption. (laughs) Is that what what goes on in the book, Katie? Uh, No. No? They get printed on a little card. Oh. And the little card, like, pops out of the machine. That's not as exciting. It's very low-tech Philip K. Dick kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not as visually interesting, I'm sure. Yeah. Because that's, I loved that in the movie. I love the little balls and it comes down and it turns. It's very dramatic too because the way the ball turns on the <laughs> platform revealing the name of whoever. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's pretty good. Aaron, you had a note here about this that I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, because funny enough, I was watching The Wire and they, they used the term red ball, which led me to sort of wonder what the etymology of red yeah. balls are in the crime, criminal system. And turns out it's totally unrelated in a sense. It mm-hmm. The best one I could find was is that um, as during a time of signaling before, you know, radios and things, right, they would use um, balls on sticks to signal in different settings, like in um, harbors sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it became, yeah, like and yeah, it became popular in um, trains. And especially what happened hmm. was when the trains, they, this is the story that I found at least, and I'm happy to hear anyone's other stories about this, but... Um, <laughs> trains that were carrying freight that was perishable and therefore needed to have right of way when traveling uh, across country stuff. high priority stuff yes. would would get red ball signals so mm-hmm. red hmm. sig- red ball came to signal you know a high priority really important get this done fast kind of thing and then at some point that transferred over to the criminal justice system when you're talking about hmm. um uh you know high priority crimes essentially yeah the murders where you got the first 48 hours or whatever to <laughs> Yeah, to, or, to or murders it. that have, like, caught the attention of the news. So, like, serial killers right, or yeah. rebels. Yes. Yeah. So. Hmm. Yeah, or, like, big violent crimes, that sort of thing. Okay, interesting. That was, I, and I, I didn't know that was a crime term either. Yeah, I didn't so either because I haven't, we haven't watched The Wires. So yeah, <laughs> I didn't either until I heard them use it. And I was that like, was oh, Philip K. Dick didn't just make that up. Interesting. Yeah. Right, or I guess cool. not Philip K. Dick, All right. but uh, Sp- Spielberg. Spielberg, yeah. Didn't just, didn't just make that one up. All right, so um, in the short story, because in the movie there's a, uh, a, deter- or a distinction between premeditated murders and uh, m- crimes of passion, murders of passion in the moment, uh, and that's where the red ball is a crime of passion, I think, if I remember correctly, is a crime of passion, and then it's like brown if it's premeditated or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, is there that distinction in the book? Because in the movie they have like, sometimes just minutes to stop the crimes mm-hmm. of passions, whereas the premeditated murders, they can have up to like four days. Is there that distinction in the book? Um, I don't recall this being discussed in the short story. Okay. I only read it once, full disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> so if it is in the errand, is it in there? Do you know? It's mentioned, remember? It's mentioned briefly in relation to the question of what, what can the precogs see? One of the other concerns you had was like, can they see all crime or just murder? Yeah. So mm-hmm. in the movie, they can only see sort of murder, it seems like. It seems like in the yeah. short story they they claim that they've eliminated all serious crime, so it's oh, not okay. just 
um, murders and um, yeah. And there's no like distinction. Like they're just sort of all the time kind of seeing a week or so in advance, essentially. Gotcha. Um, that makes sense. Yeah. And that kind of, and that kind of plays into a, 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 a sequence in the film we'll talk about here in a little bit, but uh, cause that was, I, yeah, I was a little confused about that. And mm-hmm. I thought that was, I mean, it's an interesting idea in this instance. I, I kind of like it thematically and like dramatically in the mm-hmm. film having, you know, those, it, it, it makes emotional sense to you when you're watching like, Oh, a crime of passion. Yeah. They only see that what it's about to happen versus sure. something where like I'm planning to kill this person two days from now. They could maybe, you know, kind of makes sense, quote unquote. Yeah. But uh, I'm not sure if it makes sense in a universe where these people can just predict the future. And, kind and of, that's it. Philip K. Dick in the short story doesn't follow through on that concept. If you think about oh. like in the execution of the the main crime that is the central yeah. issue of the story, the character commit, commits a series of other crimes that like if yeah. they really did predict all crimes, <laughs> they you'd, would get, know about you'd have an assault card. You don't like he yeah. could piece his way through what's going to happen to him at that point. Yeah. Uh, so now we're going to hit a lightning round. Uh, we've talked about this briefly in the prequel episode about how Steven Spielberg hired a whole panel of future uh, researchers, basically scientists and medical researchers and architects and all kinds of stuff to create the world of Minority Report, which is one of my favorite parts. Things about the film is sort of the world building that it does very passively. Uh, but but I want to get into because I want to see if any of these elements from the film that I love are from the book or if Steven Spielberg has created all and his panel of, you know, future experts have created all of them. So this is Dick versus Spielberg and I'm going to go rapid fire and you just hit me with him, Katie, as fast as we go. Uh, first up the gesture based display system. This is one of the coolest things to me about the movie when I first saw it, when I was like, I don't know, when did this come out? 2002. So I was like 14 or something or Mm -hmm. 15. Uh, I love the way he like conducts the computer to navigate through the, the interface and through the prediction and stuff. Is there anything like that? mentioned in the book or the short story no perfect one for one now no uh retinal scanning does that take place um i don't think that this is nope no no okay. that's what i thought i was like that was the only one where i was like maybe that mm-hmm. it could have been a little thing that you just didn't notice or something like that yeah. yeah but nope okay uh automated interconnected supercar highway that runs right into your home basically you pull up from your car just kind of attaches to your wall and you crawl right out is that in the book, Katie? No. Okay. Uh, <laughs> personalized ads, like they, they. Well, I assume with the retinal scan, I mean, they could do it a different way. But in mm-hmm. the movie, there's every. You know, when you go into a mall or anywhere public, you cut your eye gets scanned, and every ad switches to you know. Oh, hi, John Anderton. Do you need new Gap shoot pants or whatever? So is that anything like that going on in the book? No. All right. I have thoughts on those though for later. All right. We'll, we'll get there <laughs> a little bit later. Uh, this I love this, and I forgot about this on until rewatching the the six stick stun batons they have that make you throw up. That is a weird weird twist on non lethal weapons. <laughs> Very weird. Not in the book. Not in the book. All right. Nope. <laughs> that is an interesting. Like you know, just a stun like an electric shock. That's not good enough. We want you to violently projectile vomit <laughs> all I mean, over the place. it's gonna stop you true it is true still just strange to me uh the spider bots there are little spider bots that they also do retinal scanning but they they run around and look for people in buildings any any spider bots in the book no no nope. okay <laughs> just chuck test <laughs> Just chuck test uh and the big one because this is one of my favorite props in all of science fiction it's it's up there at least uh it, I don't know. I have a lot of favorite props, but this is one of my favorites is the spin to win shot shockwave shotgun. 
that uh, Anderton uses to uh, he steals it from a guy who's chasing him and then spins it around like a crazy person and blasts people across the room and it's super cool. No. No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no. Um, and, and Aaron made a, an aside comment earlier. This is a very low tech. Yeah, the universe Philip in the K. book Dick. is a little yeah. more low tech than. Yeah. Well, okay. And that's really the nature of Philip K. Dick's stories for the most part. There's usually one big change to the technology from what we currently have, mm-hmm. and then everything else is kind of schlubby normalcy. So you get the precogs, yeah. and that's it. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, your much. that's your give me is the right. premeditative murder. Gotcha. Okay, well, we'll just spin the wind shotgun. I, I assumed that uh, again. Most of these to me felt very much like a panel of people sitting, mm-hmm. going, "What is the future going to look like in forty years?" And a, a lot of it is, and we talked about it in the prequel episode. They did a fairly good job uh, with creating things that turned out to actually be real tech, yeah. not too far in the future. Yeah, so. or, or close to yeah. real tech, anyway. There's a good range yeah. from um, impressive foresight to ridiculous rule of cool shotgun. Spin to win yeah. shotgun. I mean, yeah. it, exactly. to me, that's not looking forward. That's looking all the way back to Terminator yes. 2 and going, oh, that exactly. was pretty cool. Yeah. 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 Some of them, yeah, definitely just rule of cool. Other ones a little more uh, practical and, and realistic, but yeah. it's a good mix that makes very yeah. fun a fun sci-fi setting. Uh, all right, let's move on. Uh, this is an interesting one because a lot of times I know when we do short stories, they change. Uh, they add a lot of back short stories that are adapted. They ch- they add a lot of backstory to main characters right, and that sort of thing that aren't. Their characters they out. flush them out. In the instance of uh, Minority Report, Anderton, we find out uh, his son was uh, abducted and they don't. We assume murdered. They don't ever really. They just never find him again, basically. Uh, and his wife ends up... It causes a lot of strife in the relationship, and his wife leaves him, or they separate. And he becomes an, a drug addict and does cool inhaler drugs. Um, <laughs> whatever whatever that's supposed to be. Does sweet inhaler drugs. Uh, is any of that going on in the book? Uh, no. No. It's all very spirit of Philip K. Dick. He did separate, I believe, from his wife because yeah. of drug addiction. Um, it's basically taking pieces of Scanner Darkly and putting it into this for a little bit of plot backstory. Um, gotcha. Which is a great um, movie short story combo that you should also do. Um, in my opinion, the best, the best the list, Philip K. So. Dick adaptation. Really? You think so? I, th- I think in terms of uh, adapting, um, following the original while also building on it in really good ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. You're, I, I'm aware, though, you're not a big Blade Runner fan. So mm. I would have to. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're not here for me to lose listeners. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I get it. It's a. I have my own thoughts about Blade Runner. It's 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 a good film, but it's it's got its downsides. It's one of the well, yeah. so. one of the better movies directed by a replicant out there. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. If anybody's a replicant, it's Ridley Scott. That's, Almost that's certainly. <laughs> Almost certainly. Uh, and then the other thing I wanted to mention, because I thought this was kind of an interesting commentary on just society, is that they mention in the film, uh, Burgess says, you know, well, we have all the statistics about how pre-crime works and that sort of thing, but you're sort of, he's talking to Anderton, he says, you're sort of our our beacon of what this represents because you lost someone and, you know, you're so emotionally invested in pre-crime because you've you you know you've you've dealt with this loss and because you don't want it to happen again and uh he says people will be more inclined to listen to you because you tell them pre-crime works because uh your commitment is born of pain and not politics 
And I was like, ah, yes, we should have the emotionally charged opinion of one man over whatever the data and other sort of thing. I mean, is that not how it works? True. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's a little bit of a hat tip to the, like, the discomfort in the story about, like, how this system is maintained. And, like, how the hand-waving around questions of, like, how do we know that this system isn't locking up a bunch of innocent people? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, because I feel really happy that all these bad people are... It's like, I feel strongly that these people should be in jail, so, you know, it's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Does this... Okay. This is a line in the film, and I assume there's probably some analog maybe in the short story. Maybe not. The line in the movie is, it's better if you don't think of them as human, referring to the precogs. Uh, Does the story explore the sort of the problematic nature of keeping three humans in a drug-induced coma? state of slavery in order to uh, enforce crime that may or may not be a good idea to begin with. Um, I did not get that element from the short story. Um, I, I think the story is pretty problematic here um, because it's made clear that the precogs are people with developmental disabilities. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, that is kind of mentioned in the movie because they are like the children of like people who are like drug addicts i think is what this mm-hmm. movie kind of implies mm-hmm. and that somehow that created their abilities it's interesting yeah potentially yeah. problematic but, but uh, to me i didn't really personally pick up on much of a theme of like exploring whether or not it's okay aaron yeah aaron what are you feelings on this well- yeah, I mean, I have. I mean, I certainly th- wish that they talked about it more in the short story. But I think, from my perspective, it's one of the great pieces of horror that exists within a Philip K. Dick short story. The the, mm-hmm. the way that the precogs are described and their existence, and the fact that um, we know that there are similar rooms like this all over the world in the short story. This isn't a uh, a, yeah. a one off thing that like yeah. It's it's a really horrifying thing, and the fact that it's not talked about and addressed more, I think, is meant to um, be, a, yeah. be an accurate commentary on how little we yeah. care about the people that suffer for the benefit of all. So, yeah. yeah, that's fair. That is a good point. Yeah, I like that. But, but yeah, I don't like that. That's awful. But I mean, because we get to, we were going to talk at some point about about things we like from that one. Yes, we can talk yes, a little more about the difference in the way they're described and stuff. That cool. Like, I can try to justify that a little bit. I can certainly understand no, I, the mindset that, like, you know, you. Sh- I think you absolutely should feel like this is horrifying. Why aren't we talking yeah. about this when you're reading it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, it, I would say that it doesn't come up explicitly the way that it does in the movie. Yeah, because it is at least kind of explicitly yeah. remarked upon. And we'll, when, the way the movie ends, which we'll discuss here in a bit, uh, kind of gives you a, a nice little bow on that storyline. Yeah. There's no nice um, bow on the short story. <laughs> no yeah, nice no. bow, yeah. <laughs> uh, so in the in the movie, all of the, uh, I have quote unquote killers, because obviously none of them actually killed anybody yet. But they are uh, they are all locked in a sort of eternal comatose state where they like... I, I, the movie isn't I don't know if it's su- super clear what they're experiencing necessarily but they are locked in some sort of like yeah uh, state of like comatose thing mm-hmm. and they're like locked in big tubes is that what goes down in the in the book or is there a different sort of uh, like uh, prison system or is it just like regular prison or whatever um, in the book anyone who gets convicted of future crimes is sent to a prison camp oh um, there's also mention of getting sent to Frontier Planets. Yes. Which is very Firefly. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. very yes. um, very Australia. 
Yeah, um, yeah, it's very, it's very so, colonial of them. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So this is something that I really don't like, actually, from the movie. I think that you have an already great, ter- depressing, like challenging premise with the precogs, and like throwing yeah. mm-hmm. this super unnecessary punishment hell for these people yeah. in. I think tips the scales and makes it a less interesting debate about how we feel about this whole system right so yeah yeah i suppose they needed tom cruise to be conveniently nearby mm. for the climax yeah because he gets locked though. away and if they sent him to australia he wouldn't yeah. be able to just come right back <laughs> and, and and finish uh wrap the movie up so uh this is a big one do the precogs predict anderton killing someone because that's kind of the main conflict of mm-hmm. the movie obviously is that anderton becomes a a victim of pre quote unquote victim of pre crime. Um, yes, that central inciting action is from the short story. Cool, <laughs> we found a connection. But, yeah, we found one. <laughs> it's finally something other than the main character's name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on from there, I, I have to know because this is this is one of my favorite lines, and it's it's. I had to think that we were talking about this had to be the movie where that started the Tom Cruise thing, right? The running thing. It's got to be this movie, but. Uh, uh, maybe Mission Impossible, which came out a few years before this, but uh, the Everybody Runs line uh, it absolutely sounds like a movie line, and I'm assuming this is not in the short story. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't recall that being in the story <laughs> yeah. anywhere. And I'm almost certain that the Tom Cruise Runs meme existed prior to, because I, I'm, oh, I'm pretty it. sure what okay. happened was they showed up on set and Tom Cruise was like, so everybody runs, right? Like, I'm going to run. And they're like, <laughs> sure, Tom. Sure. We'll, whatever you say, man. Somebody write some chase scenes. Let's go. Yeah, <laughs> it's like everybody runs right, and they're like, uh, "No, where's uh, we're gonna add that?" And, yep, that's a yeah. great line, Tom. We're gonna contract stipulates that everyone runs as a jogging yeah. program for the whole team every every morning. So the the whole the, let's talk about the title of the story and the movie, which is Minority Report. The short story is the Minority Report. Are the Minority Reports the same thing in the book as they are in the movie? Where in the movie, it's one of the precogs has an alternative view of the future, and this is a. Uh, and that if this was known, this would basically undermine the entire pre-crime system because people would question whether or not, you know, how accurate this predictive, these precogs are if some of them are predicting different things. Is that the same kind of idea that's going on in the, um, in the short story? I got that same kind of basic reading yeah. from it. Like, I had the same basic understanding of the system. Um, Aaron, do you want to weigh in on that one? Yeah, I mean, it's basically yes, but it's vague and kind of messy, I think is sort of yeah. the answer. In in the short story, he says the idea was it's like with computers, where when you want to test if a computer has done a computation properly, you weigh it against two other computers. And the idea is if two computers get the exact same results and one doesn't, you have a good reason to think that two computers wouldn't make the exact same error and therefore they can be relied upon as accurate even if there is a minority report. So the three precog system is supposed to be based on that same model. Um, Now, obviously, it doesn't work that way in either case really well, but that's sort of the theory. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. Uh, A big fun scene. I love this scene in the movie. Does uh, Tom Cruise get his eyeballs ripped out of his head and replaced with new ones by the dude from uh, Fargo? (laughs) I love that guy so much. Yeah, he's a great bit actor. He like only ever shows up playing that kind of character and things, but he's always great. He's always well, it's so not great. in the short story. It's not in the short no. story. No eyeball replacement. Well, there's no retinal scan, so there would be no yeah. need for eyeball replacements. Peter Stormard. Uh, except, I love him. Yeah, Stor- yeah that's it. Stormare. Stormare. Yeah. yeah. 
All right, no eyeball uh, replacement. I mean, I guess you could do it cosmetically, even if there's no. <laughs> Although that seems unnecessary when yeah, there are like colored <laughs> contact lenses. <laughs> I really like the spiders too, but yeah, yeah, yeah. That whole sequence uh, is 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 great. I think most of the stuff they um, added to this was was improvements, right? I mean, the thing with short story yeah. with um, yeah. Philip K. Dick is you're always going to have to add something, and it's a question of yeah, it does what you add improve or take away? Take, yeah, mostly it improves. Do th- okay is this because this is an interesting idea in the film, and I want to. I assume it's probably not in the book, but uh, the Burgess ends up basically because he's. I mentioned it in the in the summary of the story. He kills the mother of Agatha, who's one of the precogs, so that she can't take Agatha back. Basically, mm-hmm. um, and he does this by have hiring somebody to com- kill her. The precogs see that they stop it. And then Burgess recreates that exactly and murders her. And this is hidden as an echo, which is like a known bug in the system where the precogs uh, re- like get the same vision of the same crime mm-hmm. several times. Uh, but in this instance, they think it's a an echo of a previous crime. And then uh, he uses that to hide his murder of her, which I thought was a clever idea if it's not in the book. Um, I, so I, is that? Yeah, it's, the- it's a clever idea. And that part of the plot is not at all in the short story. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The whole... It, it, it's, the whole way that the twist of the minority report system works is completely different. Like, yeah. the system is basically the same, but, like, the reveal of why everything got so messed up is totally different. The last two things here, big ones. Uh, does pre-crime ultimately fold? In the film, it gets shut down because, like I discussed earlier, the whole issue with Burgess and everything. Uh, they shut it down. No more pre-crime. Uh, no, pre-crime lives on. Oh, all right, that's a big change. <laughs> yep. it's, it's bleak, that's for sure. Well, it's and it's actually it's some of the things I think that we'll discuss here shortly. Kind of when we get into a bit of the determinism, free will debate type of that's very much a central theme of this story uh, is that the movie kind of tends to come down on the side of yes, free will, whereas the story mm-hmm. comes on down on the side of no free will. And if that's the case, it makes more sense for pre-crime to fold in the movie where they're like, yeah, free will doesn't you can't yeah. actually predict, you know, that sort of thing. Is that your take on it, Aaron? Or are you Yeah, the movie fun? chickens out on the problem of free will <laughs> because it wants to give everyone yeah. a happy ending and tell them that they have yeah. choice. I know. I agree. You, you won't get any debate for me. I'm a I'm a big I'm a big. Uh, yeah, I'm on I'm on your side of the debate here, but and we'll get into it a little bit. But uh, yeah, finally, do the precogs get to live out their days in a Thomas Kincaid painting? And I assume no, <laughs> based on what we said earlier. Yeah, that would be a no. That'd be a big no. <laughs> yeah. Sick burn. Yeah. No. No. There's no saccharine syrup poured all over the end of that story for some reason. Philip Kiddick doesn't really yeah. do happy endings. Doesn't doesn't really yeah. do happy endings. Yeah. Uh, yeah well, not the movie so much said, how work. Movies like this is a Tom Cruise Tom Cruise summer blockbuster. It's gotta gotta have a happy ending. All right, that was it for was that in the book. Now we're gonna move into our next segment, uh, Lost in Adaptation slash Philosophy, because we're kind of going different ra- ways with it this week. Just show me the way to get out of here, and I'll be on my way. Worlds are lost. Yes, yes, and I want to get unlost as soon as possible. Normally, this section is just lost in adaptation, and this is where if I'm confused about something in the story or in the film, uh, I'll try to get more background information from you in from the story. In this instance, since a lot of things were added and the short story is shorter, we're going to kind of merge it into like a just a general discussion, and we're going to we're kind of branch out a little more into the philosophy here, which is mm-hmm. the whole reason we have Aaron on. Um, and we're not going to go super in depth because you should listen to both episodes of Philosophy in Space if you want to deep dive on those topics, but. Uh, we're going to get into a little bit here and kind of g- get you a bit of a taste of it. So the first thing I wanted to talk about 
and this is we mentioned earlier, but there's a whole sequence where Agatha predicts a ton of trivial events by like hiding behind balloons and things mm-hmm. to navigate them through the world without being caught. Um, and we could we discussed it. So in the short story, they can predict almost everything, including trivial events or just crime related events. Aaron. Yeah, so they, what he says is they predict a bunch of stuff. They just spit out data that they don't understand. Because again, okay. we got to be clear here. Yeah. In the movie, they give the precogs minds and consciousness. Yes. In the short story, they have nothing. Their entire brain has atrophied besides the psi part of the brain, essentially, gotcha. along with all, most of their body. They're, they're yes. strapped into chairs. They never move. They have no inner worlds, as far as we're told, at least. Gotcha. And they just babble into microphones that record the information. And then that information comes out in the form of a bunch of cards, some of which are useful to the police, others of which are like random information about stuff that doesn't relate to them at all that they then trade with other agencies, is what he says. Gotcha. So Before we get any further, let's do this, because this we're not a philosophy podcast here. A lot of our fans aren't into that sort of, or not that they're not into it, but it's not something you know they delve into a lot. We're, we're, I'm a film major. Katie's uh, has two English degrees. That's it's not our world that we live in. Um, <laughs> so let's, like, because one of the main themes and discussions in this film is sort of the discussion of free will versus determinism and from a very basic sort of point of view Aaron I, I know it's not an easy sure. <laughs> it's more it's yes yeah, but can you give us a little brief kind of a synopsis of what that discussion is and kind of where this movie uh you know just or where this movie takes that discussion a little bit yeah so the elevator pitch here is um yeah you know, is a big question about how much we have control over our actions. And we all, I think, like to believe that even though we realize that some our, our actions are in some ways constrained by things beyond our control, we like to think that ultimately something within us has a kind of freedom that allows us to choose to believe one thing versus another, act in one way versus another, and therefore garner credit for our behavior or blame if we do something wrong. Um, right. Where in reality, I think... Um, everything is determined that this the view of determinism is all events are caused by a com- combination of prior events in a way that is um, functionally speaking necessary right beyond our mm-hmm. control and so I think if you look at any of your actions over the course of your life and drill down on the reasons that you did them eventually you go far enough back you find things that were beyond your control and all of that is what makes you you and then how do we cope with that lack of free will is a major question that i often try to wrestle with and like you said you're sympathetic to this idea as well but a lot of people find that really abhorrent and so they do not want a world they they would hate the idea of a system that claimed it could with 100 percent or even 99 percent certainty predict their behavior we like to think that we are able we are we are special in a way that that doesn't capture i think yeah yeah, and I think one of the ways that plays out in the film is with the character of Whitwer, mm-hmm. who is, uh, they mentioned several times, a devout Catholic. Uh, he always mm-hmm. is carrying around, it looks like a rosary, I believe, with him at, at times. Um, and sort of, I think his his need for there to be, there, he, he plays sort of the foil to Anderton in that he doesn't buy into pre-crime, at least in, kind of at first, uh, doesn't, you know, doesn't buy into it and says, you know, how do you, how do we know we're not locking up innocent people? How can you guarantee that even though your system says they're going to commit a crime in the future that they actually will uh which anderton responds with the great rolling the ball across the desk and letting it almost fall and he goes how did i know you're mm-hmm. how did you know it was going to hit the floor that sort of thing um but i thought it was an interesting kind of providing this catholic uh 
uh, devout Catholic who, who, who desperately needs there to be sort of libertarian free will as part of his worldview, um, playing the foil to Anderton, who, again, ultimately kind of still comes down on the side of free will, even though like <laughs> it's a little muddy towards the end, I think, with kind of where his character goes. But mm-hmm. I thought that was an interesting concept that I don't know if that's how rel- or how much that plays out in the book at all or not. But yeah, well, I was thinking we were chatting about this um, during the break. Um it seems like we should pre- we should explain the way the thing works out in the short story because it's substantially yeah, yeah, different that, yeah. enough that like yeah, yeah. so in the short story what happens is the three reports are all minority reports and they're sequential and the reason they occur that way is because he Anderton is in this unique position of being able to read his own report and thereby create a time loop paradox problem which is gotcha, not in right. the um, movie. There's a whole separate time paradox that we could talk about that this is an yeah. uncaused cause scenario um, in the short yeah. story. Um, but what happens is, what, what he figures out is the first minority report was that uh, the military was going to try to stage a coup and he would murder Kaplan in the process of trying to stop them. And then the second report, which said that he wasn't going to murder him, was a report based on him interpreting the information that he saw from the first report, right? Right. And then the third report is he's figured out that all of this was part of a plan, he thinks, to take over the police force, and then he he decides to kill him again. But at no point Uh is it a choice that he makes. He's always being sort of driven, in a sense, by the access to this information, right? Yeah. So, and at the end the the minority the, all the reports are proven correct so it's not like in the right. movie where max von sydow killing himself proves it, yeah right proves that it's not accurate yeah. yeah right interesting yeah that is a very very different uh sort of and it does like you said kind of since it is all driven by his his actions are all driven by the previous actions kind of confirms the idea that again with this the story kind of coming down more on the deterministic side of the equation yeah mm-hmm. and that yeah that's how this all adds up and there's a wonderful exchange at the end where he's explaining it to Whitworth as anderson is packing up to be sent to the frontier because he has murdered someone and now has to go into exile <laughs> um and he yeah. basically says uh they're, they're going to keep pre-crime open and he says this can only really happen if you look at the reports so really this can only be a problem for you personally have fun yeah yeah which is one of the things i thought was interesting that the movie does touch on a bit is that because anderton sees the future or sees quote unquote sees the future he actually has the ability to change it whereas the rest of the murderers don't get to see the events of the what the precogs predicted so they have no means to change it i thought that was uh and we kind of just what we touched upon a Mm -hmm. little bit but it seems like a very uh problematic element of the movie in terms of like so cops, if they ever are going to commit a crime, get the in the movie world, get the benefit of seeing that they're going to do this and thus changing their action. All of us normal plebs just get to do it regardless of whether or not like it's a yeah. Yeah. And they, they sort of hand wave at this, like I said, in the in the short story as well, in a sense that I think that like Philip K. Dick, who was pretty anti-establishment in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. right, I think was deliberately sort of trying to be critical of the fact that you know, an alternative to this situation would be you tell people what this information is 
And the reason I think they don't do that, uh, they don't really give a perfect reason. Like, um, but I think the best answer would be that it would be more chaotic, right? You wouldn't be able to control the future as effectively if you had all of these weird paradoxes running around where people have been told what they were going to do and that alters their behavior. You get a lot of weird recursive problems. So it's like if you value predictability over freedom right if you don't tell people this stuff you keep it secret you can get rid of all the crime but you are dooming people where some percentage of them might have been able to be rehabilitated and not commit the crime yeah it's a dark story it's so dark it is a dark story (laughs) yeah it's a very dark story i'm probably gonna i do tend to go back and read uh most of the sci-fi that i don't read for the show i go back and read it this is definitely one i'm gonna go back Mm -hmm. and read so but i did want to mention because i thought this was interesting and i didn't notice this until recently i'm rewatching that one of the main uh visual cues in the precogs vision of anderton's murder is this old lady smoking a pipe Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the pipe itself is a very distinct pipe, and I was like, "Where do I know that pipe from?" And it's not—it's not the exact one, but there's a pretty famous uh, painting, uh, uh, "The Treachery of Images," I, whatever the French Ce title. N'est pas un pipe. Yeah, that one. This is not a pipe, um, and I thought that was potentially a pretty clever uh, visual cue from them about sort of, and at least in the in the world of the movie, the, the, coming down on the free will side, basically letting us know that. It's not these this prevision that we're seeing this pre these, sort of the prediction that we're getting is not because again the movie comes down on this side is not necessarily the future that will take place is not what you're seeing is not necessarily what is true quote unquote yeah mm-hmm. um, and I thought that was a pretty interesting way to code that in visually I just and I never noticed that before because it is a mm-hmm. I don't know if I'd never seen that painting before but anyways I thought it was interesting yeah I think um you could also interpret that as i think that's a that's definitely one way that that's going it's also potentially like um pointing to this thing we were just discussing about you know this information provided in context could be viewed differently right so yeah. who is looking at the information whether it's a painting of a pipe right who then you know if you have the concept of the pipe you see that picture differently right yeah. same thing with these people being allowed access to this future information it, it necessarily that the perception of it changes it right yeah it's a good film it's a pretty yeah. good film. it's definitely on the high really end of adaptations of philip k dick short yeah. stories all right let's get into our uh now where we really get to the nitty-gritty and compare and contrast better in the book you like to read oh yes i love to read what do you like to read everything we got a few things here from each of you that you preferred from the short story. Katie, I'm going to let you go first, and then okay. we'll get to Aaron's segment, or Aaron's uh, few things that he had, so go ahead. Yeah, I just had a couple of... Yeah. Um, but this, the short story is a little spare. So they, they changed, as we discussed earlier, um, The it's the, the little rolling balls in the movie are what give yeah. them the information yeah. about the crimes. And in the short story, it's cards. Mm-hmm. And I, I understand like the visual mm-hmm. purpose of that and that it looks cool and everything. Yeah. And they say in the movie that it's supposedly then impossible to forge. Oh yeah. Cause they have like a laser uh, yeah. engraver thing. That's like, super but it just seems me. really impractical, <laughs> like wildly impractical. How do they keep records? They have a, they have a, they have a giant, uh, you know, like a, an hourglass, like in, uh, uh, Harry Potter, like with the, where they keep all the gems in the in the great. I don't hall, know. I like to think the... that they all bring in their old like pickle jars, and they just have jars and jars of these balls. All these sitting balls around. sitting around. And they dig through them. <laughs> yeah. Well, what they probably do. And now this is an interesting point that I'm surprised I didn't notice, but I would bet what what would make sense to do, and 
I would be surprised if they didn't do is when you get to the prison where all the people come out of the floor that they put those two balls with whoever, like, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the murderer, quote unquote, that they convicted, they would like store the balls with that person. Hmm. I guess, I but know. now you've got like all of all of your evidence and records in one place, and that also yeah. seems. Uh, like and Tim Blake Nelson's really busy. Like, I'm not sure he's got a lot of time yeah. for messing around with the balls. He's got the, that's the, true. Yeah, playing the music yeah. and stuff. You know, it's important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought the idea that in the movie that they could only see murder was a limitation that I felt like didn't it was kind of what it we was, discussed. Yeah, yeah it, it doesn't really like, necessarily make more sense in the universe. It was kind of a gimme yeah. for the, the purposes of the film that I was kind of like, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> like, why exactly would that be a limitation on... Especially because in the movie, within the world of the movie, it's also not necessarily consistent, like we talked about earlier, with her being able to predict, Agatha being able to predict all these little minute yeah, she events. Yeah, like everything that happens when they're in the mall. Yeah, so it doesn't really make a lot of sense that she would that they would only be able to predict murder. And they do mention in, in one of the commercials for pre-crime, the person says... It's. I was going to get stabbed. I was going to be raped or something yeah. like that. And so that apparently now maybe both of those also ended in murder. Like those. That's, but that's... I, I was like, so the movie is a little inconsistent on what exactly yeah. pre crime does. But but generally it was just kind of murders was like the. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it does make more sense in the story where it's, it's right everything. where they just see everything. Yeah. Um. And I mean, I I guess we can all make up our own rules for how that would work because <laughs> yeah. it doesn't exist. But... <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know about that. I listened to a, an episode that Aaron was on of a podcast, and that we don't know that that's necessarily yeah. Exist. Right. <laughs> it's a whole topic for another day, but. <laughs> um, I do like the idea. I mean, I, I agree that it's a it's sort of a cheap trick for plot reasons, but I like the empathy based model that they do in the the movie versus they don't really talk about, you know, other than it being psi power, they don't really get into yeah. what's going on with the precogs in the short story. Um so I like yeah. that it like they focus on high emotion um yeah. kinds of yeah. crimes. That's a cool image at least. So. Yeah, that is a good explanation for it in the film. If you're gonna go that direction of only seeing murder, they do uh, uh, kind of explain it by saying you know, yeah, it's these, it's murder, it, these things that are, yeah, incredibly, uh, they basically like do the, uh, it, like the Harry Potter description of like, you know, it's when you kill somebody, it like tears your soul. So like, this mm-hmm. is something they can see kind of thing, quote, you know, yeah. kind of that idea behind it. Um, which yeah, is interesting. And you don't like the eye surgery I scene? I do not like the eye surgery It's a great scene. scene. I was not a fan. You don't, you don't like eye, um, based, uh, body know. horror? <laughs> You don't like eye body horror? No. No? All right. So I, I, well, yeah. We're not going to watch like most Japanese horror films then. <laughs> That's a personal preference thing, I suppose. I love I love that scene. It's so good. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm a big fan too. All right, Aaron, you had a few things here from the short story that you like. Yeah, I mean, like I said already, I really do like the sort of Cronenberg-style description of the precogs. Um, I think it's very disturbing and sort of exploitative. I don't know. Do you want me to... Uh, it's like it's a paragraph long. I could read it if that's sort of sort of thing yeah yeah go for it yeah that's perfect like we do. i do like we do like doing that now okay and we have a, a good uh he says uh, in the gloomy half darkness the three idiots sat babbling every incoherent utterance every random syllable was analyzed compared reassembled in the form of visual symbols transcribed on conventional punch cards and ejected into various slots 
All day long, the idiots babbled, imprisoned in their special high-backed chairs, held in one rigid position by metal bands, bundles of wires, clamps. Their physical needs were taken care of automatically. They had no spiritual needs. Vegetable-like, they muttered and dozed and existed. Their minds were dull, confused, lost in shadow, but not shadow of today. The three gibbering, fumbling creatures with their enlarged heads and their wasted bodies were contemplating the future. The analytical machinery was recording prophecies, and the three precog idiots talked. The machinery carefully listened. Yeah, that's horrifying. That's truly horrifying. horrifying. Yeah. The, what the movie does with them, I understand why they did it, mainly because we get the sort of sappy, happy ending where they're like, fine, and go live on a farm. <laughs> you know, like your dog that got hit by a car just went to live on a farm. Uh, that's kind of the ending we get. But uh, that, if this was not a Tom Cruise action flick, this movie could have been made a very different way mm-hmm. that would have very much uh, played into sort of that side of the horror side, the yeah. creepy awfulness side of what's going on here. Um, would be a, it would be a different fun adaptation that I would like to see. So yeah, it could be a cool. It's you know it's an R rated movie instead of a PG thirteen movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, but most exactly. most of the greats are. So yes. <laughs> um, and I you know this is another thing I like the lack of chase scenes in the short story. Yeah. Like yeah, it's fair. There are lots of different ways that you can fill time when you are adapting a Philip K Dick movie, and I think things like the eye scene are the right way to do it. And chase scenes, except for a couple of exceptions in Total Recall, perhaps, like, you know, does it work as well? Especially for, like, in the short story, it's all about it being, like, grinding determinism. And so Mm -hmm. in the movie, it feels like you can action your way out of problems. Whereas in the story, it's like, if you don't think your way out of this, no amount of actioning is going to do anything. You don't get a spin to win shotgun. Yeah, yeah, no spin it to win it. Um, And then, of course, like, you know, we'll talk about this, I guess, but I like the ending better, obviously. I like the the hard determinist ending. (laughs) I do as well, and I didn't even read it, but I'm. And there there are ways that you could debate, like, the multiple timeline views that might be going on within a world like this, but in the broader sense of accurately predicting your behavior, I think they, they go the right direction. Cool. All right, well, that was what we had for Better in the Book. Uh, Now let's talk about the film, Better in the Movie. My life has taught me one lesson, Hugo, and not the one I thought it would. Happy endings only happen in the movies. We got a bunch of things here. I have a bunch of notes. I'm going to try to condense it a little bit. Yes. because I don't think that there's any reason for me to go through. And I think one of the things that's interesting. (laughs) Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting here that we're sort of learning as we go is that. Uh, we're getting a feel for Katie. Your sort of um, you're you're a, you're a fantasy. You're a fairy tale. That's yeah. your realm. That's where you live. That's where you write. That's what you read. And Aaron, very much <laughs> being a sci-fi, uh, you know, dystopian. Like he's into the horror. He's into the his vo- his podcast. One of his podcasts is called Embrace the Void. And we can definitely see the the, the differences in the, your two tastes. In what's... <laughs> I mean, it's the difference between, like, y'all were reading about the different kinds of cyberpunk, whereas I was born to them. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> you know, my father was a sci-fi um, special effects nerd, specifically, like, the, yeah. ancient, the old claymation stuff. So, like, as soon as it was remotely acceptable for him to show me everything, it was, like, all on the table immediately. But go ahead, Katie. Let's, uh, what are some of the things you like from the movie, Bore? Okay. Um, so I really liked the whole opening demonstration of how the Department of Pre-Crime works. Okay. Um, 
I thought that having them be able to actually watch the predictions, like yeah. watching a movie, was an interesting element. And for a movie, definitely yeah. more interesting than watching the characters read, read a report. Punch cards, yeah, yeah. It definitely makes sense to trans. <laughs> I mean, imagine that film. Imagine that sequence with Tom Cruise, except he's just like rifling through a Rolodex of punch cards quickly. It's like not quite the same. Colin Firth just staring at him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're all just standing around. He's just like shuffling cards. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was a good like opening scene like introduction to like okay this is how this universe works right yeah and again we talk about this a lot on this podcast but when you're when you're transferring something from a written read format Mm -hmm. to a visual format it's it needs to be visual it's got needs to be visual generally so i i felt like to me i felt like the movie had more like kind of intrigue and like stakes yeah. Like there was, to me, it felt like there was more going on overall. Well, there's definitely, it would seem like from what we've gathered so far, uh, with the with the story that plays out with Anderton and sort of, it, it's a more, um, because Anderton can change what happens in the yeah. movie, whereas in the, in the story, maybe not as much. Yeah. Uh, so it, yeah, it adds some different stakes to kind of what we're getting. It, it was very twisty turny. And yeah. I, mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. That kept me interested. Oh, it's, it's a great, yeah, it's a great sort of thriller mystery. If you've never read the story and you don't have any idea where, like for me, I, when I, you know, first time seeing this and even rewatching it, I had forgotten how it ended. Mm-hmm. I knew roughly, like I remembered the whole thing with the, Burgess killing the mom and that sort of thing but I didn't remember I couldn't remember in that final scene what if Burgess shot Anderton or if he like I forgot that he killed himself basically um and and so it was still I think it's got some good twists and turns for a for a film for like a thriller it's a good blockbuster thriller yeah it Mm -hmm. it does that well yeah totally agree even if it abandons if it abandons the pretenses of the story, it's another point. But yeah, it, even, <laughs> even the scene end. that's clearly lifted from um, Phantom Menace or whatever it is, right in the fact. Oh in the yeah, factory. we're gonna talk about we're gonna talk about that here in a second. We're, I got that in my notes. We're gonna get there very shortly. Um, okay, and then I'll I'll have my what's going to be a controversial opinion here with you two is okay. that I like how the movie ended. Okay, yes. I like that pre crime folds. I, I don't um, have a problem with pre crime folding in the sense that I think morally that's probably. <laughs> a yeah. good thing in the, but I, in the I world have... of the film like in the world of the film the right thing happens yeah. I think but I have no stake in the determinism versus free will <laughs> debate I have no race in the horse in this race <laughs> um, so I I like that there was more of a happy ending um, yeah and I, I I like happy endings <laughs> and I feel like with the way that the world is <laughs> I need a happy ending. <laughs> I think that's absolutely fair. There are there are things that I watch where I want them to have happy endings, and there are things that I watch where I don't want them to have happy endings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and especially with because within the world of the movie, we do get to know Agatha, one of the precogs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that it would have made um, a more book like ending very very grim and bleak. Yeah, that's certainly yeah. true. Yeah. Uh, and then f- I think you're you're wrapped up there, Katie. Yeah. All right, Aaron, you had one little note here about some of the stuff you liked in the film. I mean, I like 
almost almost every besides the change to the ending i like almost yeah. everything they add into you know even the chase scenes like it's a little ridiculous but like yeah. the tech is cool the shotgun is cool right the screens yeah. are really impressive the eye scanner stuff is creepily prescient like and, a, yeah. and a, mm-hmm. much of the stuff that's added is in the spirit of philip k dick which i really appreciate yeah. um so yeah i mean i like uh, the I don't know if you. I think you guys talked about this a little bit in the intro, the the um, prequel thing, but um, the color effect that they do for yeah, the- I did mention that. Yeah, they uh, they ran it, and I have a note. I think I, I can just talk about it now if I can find it. Yeah, um, I, I mentioned that I do love the look of this film. They used a, it's a special style of film processing. Um, it, it was some sort of it's well, I got it here. Bleach bypass is what it's called. And it, it basically what gives it that silvery, high contrast look. I mean, it works well for the sort of noir, tech noir story that we get yeah. in the film. It, um, but it's also it gives it a very good future noir look because mm-hmm. it's all silvery and, and that high contrast. And every, you get you get that weird bloom on a lot of the on a lot of the stuff when it's when there's like high amounts of light. You get that kind of weird light bloom that it's it's almost it's almost. Uh, it's like a better version of what J.J. Abrams does with lens flares, kind of, like at times. Totally. Like, <laughs> no, that's exactly yeah. right. It's like lens flare without yeah. the lens flare. Yeah, it's lens flare without the lens yeah. flare. But uh, it's, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a good-looking film, as most Spielberg films tend to be. So. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, say what you will about Tom Cruise. He, he's a good actor. Like, he's worth watching. Oh, he's fun I agree, to watch. absolutely. Um, oh, yeah, he's, he's a fantastic actor, I think. I mean, yeah, he has, he has his, his problems, but he's, no, he's a great, great actor. Watching him chow down on some toxic-looking food is super fun. <laughs> yeah, would watch, yeah. would recommend. <laughs> All right, uh, that was it for Better in the Book. We're going to hit a few more odds and ends, then we'll do our final verdict, uh, and then we'll wrap this thing up. But we have a few notes here that we want to discuss just kind of while we were watching the film and uh, talk about those. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned that you thought that the potentially the flying police were a reference okay, to Fahrenheit 451. Okay, the flying police. Mm-hmm. Is that a reference to Fahrenheit 451? I want to know. Probably. Because that's my favorite part of the Fahrenheit 451 movie. I've is never the seen shitty, them. like, they're like action figures on strings. <laughs> <laughs> I've never <laughs> seen that flying one. flying so. police jetpacks. I, I don't remember if they're in the book, honestly, because I haven't read the book since high school. Yeah. But I remember watching, it's like a 1960s... Um, adaptation of yeah. it i remember watching it in school and i lost my goddamn mind <laughs> well i think this movie does a really good job of illustrating how in how unpractical jetpacks <laughs> are as a means of, mm-hmm. <laughs> of yeah. mobility like yeah. even in this movie in 2002 they still look completely goofy and like they're just they like anderton just outruns an entire pack of people on rocket on jetpacks <laughs> you know by like climbing around on monkey bars and stuff like it's <laughs> tom cruise he's the best at running it's true he is the best at running but katie i think we have an answer to your question actually it appears okay. that in fahrenheit 451 in the book there's a thing called a beetle which is a car that hovers above the ground and moves very quickly oh yes so yeah so similar yeah, there you go. That is in the it is in the book. You were you were curious about yeah. what was in the book. I thought not just yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, so yeah. could be totally a reference. I think one of the other things that I I thought was funny at the beginning of the movie. We're just jumping around here in these mm-hmm. notes. Sure. Uh, feel free to jump in whenever aired. Um, the uh, I just thought it was a little funny thing at the beginning is that that wife is terrible at having an affair. 
Like she really is the worst at it. You you could not wait more than thirty seconds. And that, no, I'm not saying I'm a professional having an affair or anything. I'm just saying. You could not wait more than 30 seconds after your husband leaves for that man to come in and start fucking you. Like, he's literally, if he forgot his keys, like, you're screwed. Yeah. Like, it's, which like, is what happens, you isn't it? If like, you're going to hide something like that, you can't be sloppy. Yeah. Maybe it's that, like, pre-crime has made everyone really lazy at doing immoral oh, things. Yeah. Like, <laughs> just seeped into yeah, the that, consciousness. Yeah, that could be it. It's just so strange to me. I'm like, man, you're really bad. like he's standing right outside their door, watching the guy walk back into the house yeah. from behind a tree. Like, like she didn't even really wait for him to leave. Well, and the guy is standing across the street in the park, staring at their house before. <laughs> like he's just standing. And the guy, even the husband's like, "Who's that guy?" I feel like I've seen. And him you know, before. if okay, if I was having an affair and my husband noticed the guy standing outside and like said something about it I to would me maybe I'd be like abort abort abort, abort. Yeah, right? <laughs> don't come in today um, this is another interesting difference between the story and the movie is that um, in the movie it's like a pilot program and they're testing to see if it works yeah. Yeah. in the short story it's been going for 50 years and like oh, wow. he says that most people have never seen a murder like so yeah I just feel like that feels a little more plausible in a sense that like if you had a like if you're living in DC right and you're in the middle of a test right. program like I feel like you're really really not going to murder somebody. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the deterrent effect yeah. would be really in place at that point. <laughs> very high, yes. <laughs> it would be very high. Um okay, I will I've got a couple Go for things cuz I ahead. I want to hear y'all's thoughts on this. We get the distinction in the movie of crimes of passion versus premeditated yeah. crimes. Mm-hmm. Um so my question is then like how much pre-crime does it take to get you arrested? Like if you're driving and someone cuts you off and for a brief moment of anger, you imagine running them off the road. (laughs) Are you arrested for that? How premeditated does your premeditated murder have to be? You would have to have go to carry it out. I think it's like they would know. You never do. Well, but you, I see what you're saying. Like, especially with the crimes of passion, that could be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you're saying. I I mean, with the, from the precogs perspective, there's no difference, right? Because you're, it's it's just crimes that would be actualized and crimes that won't be actualized. Yeah. And then you get the weird sort of for the sake of the movie stuff about like certain crimes because of the way that they are actualized because you're not sitting there thinking about it ahead of time or something it doesn't become as obvious as early but i think the i I think the idea would be like you know if i'm going to kill you a week from now and i'm thinking about it right now and the precogs can see a week in advance then they can see up to the point where i start thinking about killing you you in a way that's gonna come true or something i guess yeah but I, I guess I, I guess I see your point, Katie. In the in the movie universe, where there is this distinction, and the crimes of passion mm-hmm. are born, and they're seen mere minutes yeah. out. Yeah, they you, there's a potential problem with whether or not they're actually right you with know, whether like, or not I'm actually going to carry that out, or if I'm just angry, and then the next ten seconds later I'm going to be like, yeah, never mind, I'm over it. Yeah, I guess the, I guess the argument would be that in the, that that they are seeing that you would in fact carry that out as opposed to just the the 10 seconds where you think you would want I to do like that. I feel like this is real weebly wobbly. Well, I, I mean, I, yeah. I agree that that is the case. Obviously, you're like, you've got a huge problem for confirmation versus false positives. 
Um, yeah. We talked about this a little bit on our show about like, well, maybe, yeah. maybe you could do a study where you just let all the crimes happen for five years while having the precogs predict them and see how many of the predictions are accurate. Um, yeah, that's yeah. a perfect test case. I feel like did they they must that that seems like you you would have to do that. Doesn't, doesn't really come up in either of the ethical. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it seems like you would have to do that in order for this to be remotely ethical. You wouldn't just like jump right in yeah. on it. But yeah, Philip K. Dick was not um, a really big uh, falsification kind of guy yeah <laughs> so i i also i feel like the, the scene at the beginning when he when the the guy has the affair and he's gonna kill his uh, wife um and the, her lover or whatever i love we talked about the tom cruise running but and they land from their jetpacks and tom cruise realizes which house it is uh, you know however by realizing the doors open or whatever and i love that for no reason whatsoever other uh, no reason whatsoever other than for us the viewer to be absolutely certain that that is tom cruise sprinting across the street he knocks his space helmet off <laughs> and like sprints across the street and i guess it's because that that helmet would really ruin his running form and tom cruise does have impeccable running form yeah. but i just thought it was really interesting that he feels the need to knock that helmet off to run across yeah. the I mean, as, as someone else who's also only five foot five, there is a peak aerodynamic point, <laughs> and if you go up to five six, you're just not going to cut it. It's true. They are kind of bulbous, and they would definitely add some yeah. wind resistance that yeah. you didn't need if you're trying to get there to stop a murder. So, yep. And speaking of the running, I love that this this movie has a scene. The one scene we get of sort of the connection between Tom Cruise's character and his son. That is, you know, the movie set is sort of the moral backbone of what or the moral setup for like Tom Cruise's attachment to pre-crime and all that sort of thing is him teaching his son how to run. It's yeah. the I love proper that. form. To run. <laughs> it's like, are they in on Is Tom Cruise in on this joke? He must be. <laughs> That's what we were watching the movie. And I asked you, I was like, is this it, where yeah. that meme? <laughs> no, it was. It, I think Aaron's right that it was before yeah. this, though. Well, I mean, it, I, like Mission Impossible, and yeah. I feel like it was before this, but this one really secured that brand. Yes. Like, because <laughs> yeah. like that and the line about everyone runs. Like, it really. Yeah. Running is a theme re- of this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it leans into it hard. And there is <laughs> none of that hard. in the sh- like the old man in the short <laughs> yeah. story is like, I am not a runner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Anderton as described in the short story, not much of a sprinter. No. It sounds like. So. <laughs> um, can I point out something super weird? I don't know if folks will yeah. notice this when yeah. they yeah. when they watch the movie. And this is not in the short story, but but um, Tom Cruise calls Colin Farrell's character a twink in like the first scene. Does he? Yes. He does. Yeah, just go back and check this out like, if you didn't notice it. But he like um, he he says some sort of crack about not being replaced by a, a twink or something. It's it's I checked it a couple times. Does that mean the same thing then that it means as far like, as that... I can tell? Yeah, yeah, I couldn't figure out. I couldn't find oh, anything about that's... why that is in there. But let's like that's there. That's part. That's a line in the and movie. It's that not happened. in the short story. No. Yeah, I don't think they had that word I back in the short I didn't catch story. that. Yeah, no, it's it's I a didn't catch super it strange. It's in a point where you know, like he, he's clearly meaning to say like this young, uh, feminine right. guy who can't yeah. do the hard work properly, but like instead right. of um, desk jockey, you get twink. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. I mean, it's 2002. Movies did things like that, but it's like a little more often. (laughs) On the flip side, though, it's 2002. Who watching Minority Report would understand that word and the reference that was being made? That like I didn't know that word. Like I think 
95% of people don't even hear the word go by when they watch that scene. Yeah. It's so weird. Well, to be fair, I didn't yeah. even notice it. I mean, I know the word and I, I my more, my experience with it is more to do with World of Warcraft than the other definition yeah, there you of go. it. But yeah, that's I, one little shot that I love in this film. There's a lot. It's a gorgeously shot film, but I there's one particular uh, two particular shots I wanted to mention. Um is one is that there there's a moment where Anderton's on the bus while he's on the run and you you get this close up shot of the guy or not close up but kind of a, a medium close up of the guy staring at his newspaper across the way mm-hmm. and then a a person walks up in front of the camera and when it when the when the guy clears the camera now suddenly the guy is staring at him because he has seen the wanted poster or wanted story in the newspaper or whatever mm-hmm. i think it's a very effective it's very like paranoia inducing and it, it immediately gets your like heart rate going in the same way that Anderton in this moment would be feeling I think it's a very effective like little three seconds yeah. of filmmaking that mm-hmm. I don't I haven't seen it in a lot of films but I think it's done really well in this one yeah definitely I like um something that they do sort of keep from the short story is that the Colin Farrell character Whitwer ends up being a decent cop like it's yeah. a nice twist. Um, yeah, I really like. I mean, this is all totally added, but the part where they get to the scene where he, where um, uh, he was supposed to kill the guy, and he accidentally ends up killing him in the movie. Um, the guy yeah. who, who you know is being framed as kidnapping his son. He talked about like the orgy yeah. of evidence thing. Like, I think that's 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 yeah. some pretty good added dialogue. I feel like. Yeah, it is. I I do love that twist because it's it 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 would it feels very cliche. Like or it feels the setup for it with the sort of the the back and forth, the tete-a-tete between Whitwer and Anderton feels mm-hmm. sort of cliche, and you're like, oh, he's going to end up, mm-hmm. you know, because Anderton thinks he's setting him up or somehow involved, and I like that subversion of that, because it is, it is at least at the time, it felt very unexpected and kind of fresh, and that he is just a good cop kind of going through yeah. uh, and making sure that this does actually work. He is just invested in making sure that sort of... Um, you know, he's he's got kind of a by the rule of the book, letter of the law kind of guy, and he's seeing it all the way through. And I think that's kind of an interesting subversion of what you would expect from the way his character is set up. I like that a lot in the movie, and I also love his death scene um, because it's completely unexpected, and the and they give you no, um, it just happens. The, yeah. he, he gets shot. You never see. You don't see Burgess pull the gun. You see him get the gun at the beginning of the scene, but you don't see him pull the gun. You don't see him thinking about pulling the gun. It's just a gunshot. And then he's dead, and you're like, oh, well, shit. This is the first time I had ever seen this movie. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that that happened. And my <laughs> notes literally say, Colin, Car- Colin Farrell's character is very smart. Oh, well, there he goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, Max von Sydow is a stone-cold gangster, turns out. <laughs> yes, he is. Uh, speaking of uh, Star Wars, I got to mention this scene because it is almost shot for shot from Attack of the Clones. And they came out, so I looked this up because I, I've forgotten this scene was in the movie The uh, where he gets the car manufactured around him. Anderton's in like a car factory plant. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, this is like the stupidest part of the movie. Like it's the it's least It's a pretty effect. big gimme. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's like in this, in the uh, a warehouse of, of a plant that builds cars and he's on the construction line basically. And there's this, the same sequence in Attack of the Clones where Anakin and Padme are on like a, a droid fa- in the droid factory, and it, there's droids getting built around them, and they even have almost the exact same scene where his arm falls in the conveyor belt, and a big metal thing comes down over and around it, and then mm-hmm. it's like it's like exactly the same thing. I'm like, were the same people working? Like, how did you get this identical of scenes in two movies? They came out the exact same year. 
like they had to be talking to each other or something like somebody stole notes from or or minority report had actual precogs working on their film crew <laughs> and they saw the plot of uh attack of the clones because it is crazy how similar it is yeah there's a lot of things i mean you know everyone was stealing from everyone at this point right yeah um yeah. Spe- speaking of stealing stuff too, another uh, comparison that I was thinking of when I was looking at the, the rereading the short story. Um, this is written in '56, Minority Report. Um, Dune yeah. is like '65 or so. Let me see. Um, we'll double check that. Uh, yeah, '65. Um, mm-hmm. The the you could draw I think a comparison between the way the precogs are described here and the way that the third stage guild navigators are described in Dune, as these sort of mutated, highly advanced. It's the the same concept of like you yeah. know all of the energy goes into this new power and the old body kind of withers and changes Shrivels, in weird yeah. ways. So it's just interesting to see that. Um, there's all these different themes in all of these sci-fi's, and one of them is yeah. um the enhancement of the biological in various ways to do things, yeah. especially yeah. in concert with technology. And it's also really stupid in both movies, particularly <laughs> this one where he gets the car built around him. And then I love the the comical like Colin Farrell fist punch afterwards where he's like, oh, I'm going to get you, you jerk. Like it's so it's. It's pretty cheesy, but that's the but... scene with your with your precious um, spin to win shotgun. Is, it is. So I like that part of it. I just <laughs> oh, I don't see. like the car being built around. Mm, it's that one specific <laughs> set piece that bothers you. I understand. Yeah, and, you know, and I, I get that the the gun's kind of silly too. But I just I'm a, I like Speaking it. Of like silly... I said, I saw this movie when I was 14, and it was in my wheelhouse of like cool <laughs> space guns. Man, all right, I'm on board. Yeah, y'all are um, like it. You do YouTube stuff as well, right? So uh, you've got some I video do, yeah, editing yeah. skills. I think you should absolutely yeah. take all of the scenes involving jetpacks and people on them um, and set them to yakety sacks because there's some really great, oh, hilarious, yes. like, jump on people and they fly in weird directions. <laughs> there really yeah. are, yeah. And if you sped it up about 10% exactly. where they get that comical, yep. like, uh, over-cranked, uh, like, Buster Keaton style. <laughs> yeah, I would watch that. <laughs> uh, movement to him. Yeah, be good. I, else, I had some questions about the eye recognition advertisements. Okay, go ahead. Does everyone hear their own name mm. or it like is the sound oh. in their heads or are the ads just announcing your full name to everyone in the vicinity? Hmm. If several people go by, how does the ad decide whose name to say? It's interesting. Like if there's a right. crowd of people, I don't want advertisements to announce my full name <laughs> to everyone in the room. You could get those. I assume. As, as yeah. I say, you get the hyper targeted um, speaker systems. Yeah. Yeah, that's like a thing where, you know, they can directly focus like the sound to just your ears based on where your eyes are probably would be like the mm. sort of advanced technology that this this universe would have. Something like that would be the case. Or and now we don't they don't there's no mention of they don't have like eye augments in this movie or anything. They don't have like sort of retinal implants or anything that would mm-hmm. be at yeah. least I don't think they do, because that would be another potential explanation is that they're he's not actually it's not actually projected in the world but that he's seeing it like just on his retinal but i don't think that's ever set up in this movie no. they're just normalized that yeah I, I think it's could you uh, could you avoid the eye ads by wearing sunglasses <laughs> yeah i mean i think it's definitely meant to it does a good job expanding the overall theme of like trading of personal freedom for yeah you know greater functionality like if you're comfortable living in a state where the people can arrest you for pre-crime, you're probably not going to complain yeah. too much about some corporate 
micro targeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the 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 gap ads are the least of their worries in this universe. So yeah, it's the yeah. moving of the Overton window, basically. Oh, and then the other thing I wanted to mention was that. Uh, one, I love the line where she's talking, and I assume this character is completely added. The 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 botanist lady who's yeah yeah mm. uh, in the movie. That was an interesting little uh, diversion that I completely forgot was in the film where he goes and visits. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, la- the yeah, lady from Harry Ivy's Potter, in this movie. right? It's... Yeah, I was about to say uh, Professor Sprout. Professor Sprout, yeah, Sprout exactly. Prof- <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah. laughs> um, and uh, and yeah, she's got venomous tentaculia and everything going on. And uh, but I love she asks like which of the Precogs is the most talented, and she's like, "Well, it's obviously the woman." <laughs> like, yeah, this is, this is um, Lois Smith, who's wonderful in this role, super funny. Yeah, she's really good. Yeah, yeah it's a great scene too. Yeah. But yeah, obviously the female. And then lastly, I knew I recognized Agatha from somewhere, and it was driving me crazy. Now she's a very well-known actress. She won like two Oscars right around mm-hmm. this time. But the thing I know her from because I I'd never saw the two movies she was one for or whatever. Uh, it's a uh, Samantha Morton is the actress who plays Agatha, and she's. We just recently got. Or we've been watching Harlots on Am, uh, Hulu, Hulu, mm-hmm. Hulu um, which is a great uh, period piece about a brothel in or brothels plural in eighteenth uh, century historic porn seventeenth. Yes, yeah, it is. Oh, it's basic. amazing. It's fantastic, though. It's a great, great show. Uh, Liv Tyler was in the most recent season. Um, it's really, really good. It's on Hulu. It's called Harlots. But yeah, and, and she's one of the main characters. And that was like, so it's like driving me crazy because this is now 20 years removed almost from. Yeah. And I didn't recognize her until you said that. Then I couldn't unsee I know. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's like the mother of the two, some of the main characters in the show. And yeah. uh, is a really fun, uh, powerful character in that show. But yeah, yeah that show like, is ah. a, a lot of commentary on issues that are still. Yes. It's about, about a, a lot of uh, sexual power dynamics and sort of, yeah, yeah the same, you know. And, and it's, it, it, yeah. It's cool to them in that Go they ahead. add that stuff in with the movie. Like in the short story, there is none of that, like Agatha's special, the woman is better stuff. Yeah. Um, and like, yeah. while I do love the creepiness of the, um, the uh, precogs in the short story, yeah. I like if they're going to give them agency, that it ends up being a, you know, a female who's given a lot of agency and control in the yeah. situation. So, yeah, that part. Yeah, cool. I think that's a good ad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I had one last okay. thing that I wanted to say. Um, we talked earlier about how they um, accurately predicted some tech Yes. Mm-hmm. For the, with this movie, mm-hmm. um, at least kind of, sort of. Sort of, yeah. And some of it was in development but at the time, but yeah. one thing I noticed that the movie gets super wrong about the future is the continued existence of shopping malls. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> That's a sick burn. <laughs> That's true. It's very true. Because that, that shopping mall is full to the brim of people, yeah. and yeah. they cannot close fast enough currently. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah they did not predict I mean, Amazon correctly. Yeah, yeah, they missed out on Amazon. That was the big feature tech that they that oh, they, they could have had get. delivery robots and all kinds. Oh yeah, of where things. there was no you know there weren't any drones there in this. Oh, I mean the well, spider yeah, drones yeah, they run around, drones. but yeah, there was yeah drones would have been a big one. How many of you would sign up for Amazon Prime if it were just a precog system that deducts from your account and sends you things you're going to want? 
It basically does that already. It's you just have to click there. a button. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to click a button saying, yes, you read my mind correctly. Yep. <laughs> was, yep. yeah. I'll, I don't know if their algorithm is that great. Usually True. they recommend me different versions of things I've already You've already bought. purchased. It's like, yeah, I already have that. I don't need another one. Yeah. I think. yeah. I'm not a mattress right. aficionado or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't need eight headboards for my bed. But okay. It's time now for the final verdict. Now, uh, are you ready for your sentence? Sentence? But there must be a verdict first. Sentence first. Verdict afterwards. Katie, you can go first. Which is better, the movie or the book? Um, For me, I preferred the movie. Okay. I thought that um, kind of exploring it through the morality of whether or not we should be doing this with the precogs yeah and like giving them agency was yeah. a little more interesting yeah you liked that aspect yeah. of it yeah cool text trader comes down on the side of the movie <laughs> <laughs> aaron what do you think i you know Which i do love going? the short story and and tend to prefer it for a couple of all the reasons that we've talked about um yeah but i mean i think like i also said i think this is one of the best philip k dick adaptations out there certainly one of the first you should try watching yeah, it's very digestible. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. for sure. It's it's uh, it's it comparative. I would if I was going to say, hey, go watch a, a Philip K. Dick a, a adapted film. I wouldn't point people towards Blade Runner first unless I knew they had drank a bunch of coffee beforehand. Because <laughs> boy, you might fall asleep. It's mm-hmm. possible. So, <laughs> all right, that was the final verdict. We got a split, which is you know that's good. That's probably fair. Yeah. That's probably a good a good way. To, uh, that, which is actually how this has gone so far with the show. We're forty one episodes in now. And it's about split if you don't count Harry Potter. It's not yeah, actually Harry, a split, Potter, though, because uh... Katie's more right than I am because she's the woman. So <laughs> she has the power and my, my minority yeah. report can be ignored. Obviously, the female yeah. <laughs> has the better um, taste. One thing. Yeah. One of the things I want to mention before we go is that we have Dune on our list one day. Mm. And I know we may have to try to get you back for that one because, boy, that is a... <laughs> a whole can of worms. It sounds a, like an undertaking. Yes, and and I don't know anybody who's uh, a more of a scholar on the series, at least from what it sounds like, than Mr. Aaron Rabbi. Yeah, the, the so. guy who does the ice and fire videos, he's pretty good. But uh, oh, okay, I'll, yeah, um, I would be happy Let's to. Check. Or you know, a scanner darkly is a slightly more manageable oh, yeah, project if one. you're looking for. Yeah, another... that would definitely be more manageable. <laughs> they did. I think you did three episodes on Dune in your yeah, podcast. Yeah, we did three. Yes, three episodes. <laughs> and Thomas, his co-host, loved every second oh, of it. God. His favorite three episodes. He's gonna he's gonna be so mad when the villain wave of her movies come. Out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I can't wait for that one. Oh, Denny's one of my favorite directors working right now, and I'm I'm excited. Uh, once again, go ahead, Aaron, plug your stuff before we go here. Yeah, you can find um, Embrace the Void and Philosophers in Space on all the major podcasting arenas. You can find me on Twitter at etvpod, where I will be saying absurd things and picking fights with anti-social justice warriors, mostly. Go get them. <laughs> fun times. Fun times. Awesome. Well, that's it for the 41st episode of This Film is Lit. So until next time, guys, gals, non-binary, and everybody else. Keep reading books. Keep watching movies. And keep, keep being, being awesome. awesome.